Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode... So, are you ready to go back in history? Professor Joy Williamson-Lott asks that question early on in this talk. She's encouraging us, exciting us. History is fascinating, right? But perhaps her question also serves as a warning. Are we ready to find out how the American promise of public education for all played out? Williamson-Lott is frank about what, quote, drives her nuts about sentimentally glowing views of yesteryears, especially when it comes to education. She chronicles waves of progress always met with societal pushback. She mines that history for ways the progress side of the equation might win out going forward. Dr. Joy Williamson-Lott teaches at the UW College of Education, quote, courses on education as a moral endeavor, the shifting definition of proper education and liberation for different social groups, and the educational histories of people of color. Her books include Black Power on Campus, the University of Illinois, 1965 to 1975, and Radicalizing the Ebony Tower, Black Colleges and the Black Freedom Struggle in Mississippi. Professor Williamson Lott gave this talk, New Hurdles, Same Territory, How History Can Guide the Future of Education, at UW's Kane Hall on February 15th. She spoke as part of the graduate school lecture series, Equity and Difference, Privilege. Here, Professor Relina Joseph introduces Dr. Joy Williamson-Lott. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. My name is Relina Joseph, and I am an associate professor in the communication department, and I also direct a center called the Center for Communication, Difference, and Equity. And I am so thrilled and honored to be introducing our speaker for tonight, uh, Dr. Joy Williamson-Lott. Dr. Williamson-Lott is the seventh speaker in the UW's 11-part uh, year-long series on privilege. She is a distinguished teaching award winner, a dynamic lecturer, a committed mentor, a creative problem solver, and a brilliant scholar. She's also an incredibly loyal friend, and she's really hilarious, too. Her research examines the reciprocal relationship between social movements, particularly those of the middle 20th century, and institutions of higher education. She is the author of multiple books, the most recent, Radicalizing the Ebony Tower, Black Colleges and the Black Freedom Struggle in Mississippi, examines issues of institutional autonomy, institutional response to internal and external pressures, and the relationship between historically black colleges and the civil rights and black power movements. She's also written about the Black Panther Party's educational programs, the history of social justice and education, and the portrayal of the black freedom struggle in high school history textbooks. She's currently working on a new book that is tentatively titled Jim Crow Campus, Higher Education and the Southern Social Order in the Mid-20th Century. And this book examines regional convergence with regard to Southern higher education between the late 1950s and the early 1970s. Professor Williamson-Lott will talk with us about how valuing history can guide the future of education. So please join me in welcoming Professor Joy Williamson-Lott.
Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out on this rainy Wednesday night. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you, Relina, for that introduction. Um, I also want to thank my friends and colleagues in the College of Education. I see many of you out there. This is a dirty business. If I had to do with anyone, I'm glad we're, this, we're in this together. Um, my Wired colleagues, women investigating race, ethnicity, or uh, women investigating race, ethnicity, and difference. I see you out there also. Um, my family, my sister made it all the way from Olympia, even though she's sick, which I deeply appreciate. My parents will be watching this on video, <laughs> uh, as will other uh, members of my family. Um, I want to thank my wing women, Relina Joseph, Wadia Udell, Janine Jones, and Alexis Harris, who couldn't be here. Uh, and my husband and partner, Joe Lott, and our babies, they couldn't be here, they're four and six, so they, they're being put to bed very soon by someone else. You all make it possible and totally worthwhile, so thank you. So, are you ready to go back in history? I'm hoping that you'll enjoy this more than you did your high school history <laughs> class. <laughs> At least more than I enjoyed my high school history class. Uh, so, since the American school was, uh, the public school was founded in the 1830s, this is when the public school as we know it emerged. Since that time, the, the lore of the public school is that it's free, it's deliberately inclusive, everybody was free to attend, uh, welcome to attend, uh, that all students would be able to receive a, an equal educational opportunity. It was to be the great equalizer, the great balance wheel in American society. Students would have access to the same kind of curriculum. They would have access to similarly, similarly trained teachers uh, and the same school schedule. Again, equal educational opportunity. And they were supposed to be able to uh, succeed based on merit and morals alone. So it's a good story, right? <laughs> uh, so even back in the 1830s, it wasn't as deliberately inclusive as the marketing material would have had you believe. Uh, it was for a small subset of whites that the public school was um, for. Uh, it didn't alienate in this uh, time period. For instance, Jews and Catholics were completely alienated because of the use of the King James Bible as a textbook in the school. And if you know anything about Jews and Catholics, you know they don't use the King James Bible. <laughs> so when you're using it as a textbook and it's required reading, you can imagine why Jews and Catholics um, felt alienated and why Catholics, particularly on the East Coast, created a parochial school system, a separate school system. Uh, people of color were not in this mix. So like I said, it was for a certain subset of whites. But even whites in the South didn't have access to a system of public schooling until after the Civil War. And blacks in the South didn't have access to a system of public schooling until deep into the 20th century, even beyond the middle 20th century. So my point with telling you this is that public schools have never been unadulterated or pure spaces. They've always been places that have alienated large segments of the American populace. So they do the same today, and I know this does not come as a surprise to many of you. Many of you study education like I do, or think a lot about education in the way I do, uh, and we know that this is not a new uh, phenomena. Many of us, like I said, are studying, to, uh, studying it in order to try and improve the quality of educational experiences and outcomes for our most vulnerable populations. 
So historians aren't usually considered in this mix of people who have something to say and contribute to educational reform, thinking forward about education, how to make progress towards some ultimate goal. But historians actually do have a lot to offer. One, we actually, what happens, this drives me absolutely crazy. You have people who love to use history and memory they appropriate it for their own purposes. It's a good old days kind of rhetoric. Oh, back when, my, when I was in school, when my people were in school, they assimilated and never had any problem with it. What's wrong with your people? This is good old days way of understanding things. Well, historians actually study the past and can disabuse you of those notions, should you ask. Uh, we have facts. We know how to interpret the facts, uh, and we can use that interpretation to, inf to fuel uh, and better inform the kind of debate that occurs um, today around education. Another thing that historians have to offer uh, is that we can tell you what worked and what didn't. A lot of people like to think that the reforms today are new. It's another thing that drives me nuts. Just because it's new to you doesn't mean it's new. Uh, and I'm not trying to draw a, a straight line from the past to the present. I'm not trying to say that the past is a prescription for the future. I, I don't believe that it, by any stretch. This is a very different context than any past was. However, there are lessons that we can learn from the past that can help inform the way we go about charting a path forward. So these are a couple of the things that historians have to offer. And this is what I want to do um, in this talk tonight. Talk to you about some facts, some interpretation of some facts. Uh, the way I'm going to frame the talk is really about progress and pushback. And so we're going to, I'm going to take you through this journey, this educational history journey, where people are making progress, particularly around African Americans. But then there's a major societal pushback that stalls that progress. Um, and even brings it backward, and then finish by talking about the, the lessons I think we can learn from a better understanding of this history. So as I said, I'm going to focus mostly on African Americans, but I am going to talk about other groups as well, because you can't tell the story of, American, of America in black and white. All right, you ready? All right, let's do this. All right. So before the Civil War, it was illegal for anyone to teach an African-American who was enslaved in the South to read or write. There were uh, severe penalties that could be meted out against you if you uh, attempted to teach an African-American who was enslaved to read and write. There were free blacks who lived in the South as well as the North, but the majority of the, southern, the black Southern population was enslaved. And the reason it was illegal to teach uh, black enslaved people to read and write is exactly what Frederick Douglass, Douglass talks about in his narrative, one of my favorite people of all time, one of my favorite books of all time. If I could have named our kids like Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, that turn, you know, I, I would have, but I don't think that would have gone over too well at home. Uh, but it, this is an absolutely amazing book to read if you haven't read it. And so this is a part of the story where he talks about his white master um, talking about the perils of, of um, literacy for black people. After this quote, he says, uh, now I understood the uh, pathway from slavery to freedom, that it was literacy. So this is not necessarily education in the way we want to understand it, it's certainly not public education, but this is, this is education in a very basic sense. It's about literacy. Uh, 
what was happening, so the reason it was so dangerous is a lot of it had to do with the reading of the Bible. So this is what a lot of black people were trying to be able to read. And when you can't read the Bible, the, I always say the Bible's like statistics. You can make it tell you whatever you want it to tell you. Uh, and so whether you read the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's a different God, right? And so the God that white slave masters were teaching black people about was this the, the vengeful, wrathful God, the slaves obey your masters. But when black people could read, as you can imagine, they were attracted to the New Testament, which was all about um, humility and loving thy neighbor and these kinds of things. And so being able to read the Bible um, to be, uh, was, a, was a way to be, if not physically free, mentally free. So that's, which was considered incredibly dangerous. So moving forward um, to a time period, I'm not sure how much you remember from your high school history classes. There was a time called Reconstruction in the South. This was, when, this was after the Civil War. I'm gonna be using the words Republican and Democrat now, but that is not, what, the way we understand Republican and Democrat now is not what was happening during Reconstruction, okay? So just, I'm gonna use them because they're important because they show you how sh quick shifts have huge impacts on um, African-Americans and for schools, uh, schooling for African-Americans. So this is a picture of the chapel at um, Alcorn. That's a black college, a historically black college in the state of Mississippi. So during Reconstruction, the South loses. The South was predominantly Democratic. When I say the South during Reconstruction, I'm really talking about the white South. It was Democratic. The winners of the war, the quote unquote North, were Republican. So Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. So Republicans say to the Democratic South, we don't trust you to run, you lost the war. We don't trust you to run your own affairs. We wanna figure out how to get you back into the Union. And so the Republicans send Republican, they, they appoint Republican um, governors to di in different states and legislators. Blacks are also enfranchised, black men, I should say, are enfranchised after the end of the Civil War with um, the 15th Amendment, 13, 14, yeah, 15th Amendment. Uh, so the 13th abolished slavery, the 14th is equal protection of the laws, and 15th was enfranchisement for black men. Um, and so you have some black men also in legislative um, positions. So you have biracial legislatures. So it's incredibly different than the, the South had looked previously. So when the, this is during Reconstruction, when these black legislators and their, uh, their white allies were there in these different states, in Mississippi, they set up Alcorn University in 1871. The first institution like its kind was publicly funded, it was federally funded, but that's still public, it was through public funds. Uh, in a remote corner of uh, Mississippi. And um, I mean, what, it, it's not purely altruistic, the way that they, setting up Alcorn, a lot of it had to do with stopping the, the bid to desegregate the uh, University of Mississippi. <laughs> so it's not purely altruistic, but Alcorn exists. Um, 1871, it was, um, they received three-fifths of the funds that were available to uh, this kind of institution in state, which is a lot, so the, uh, a majority of the funds. So it was well-funded, uh, it had black and white trustees, they had generous support from the state legislature, and all students received, it was a teacher training institution, all students received the kind of education that you would want of the, um, your 
future teachers with lots of classical subjects in pedagogy and a smaller amount of it, what was called industrial training. Uh, this was training for work. There's this giant battle between the, over the curricula uh, at the time because it's all about first-class citizenship, second-class citizenship for blacks. So this, kind of, this institution at the beginning was educating blacks towards first-class citizenship and educating those teachers who were getting their degrees there accordingly. So Reconstruction ends in 1878. Rarely can you say when a historical period ends. You can with Reconstruction. It ends in 1878. It's a compromise brokered on the backs of blacks. Uh, it's about the White House. You remember back with Al Gore, and I mean, now you think this is bad, like what happened this time around? <laughs> there, uh, there, uh, this, this was um, a compromise literally brokered on the backs of blacks in the, the uh, federal legislature. And it, what, it ha what happened is that all uh, the Republicans and the federal government left the South. That was part of the compromise. So they, got, they left the South and left blacks to fend for themselves, basically. Uh, and so these racist whites swoop back in and take control. Democrats take back control of the state legislature, not just in Mississippi, but in other places also. And these newly elected Democrats, they fire the black trustees and appoint only white trustees. They um, reduce the annual appropriations. Uh, they abolish state-funded scholarships. They downgrade the curriculum. Uh, and then they renamed the institution Alcorn Agricultural and Mechanical College. A little while later, uh, this, his name's Vardaman, the governor here. He was governor of Mississippi between 1904 and 1908. You can see how he feels about uh, African Americans. This is but one quote that I could have chosen about the uh, governor's attitude towards African Americans in general, not just in Mississippi. Uh, so what he does is he obviously discourages black aspirations at any opportunity, and what he does is he reduces the salaries of the academic faculty and increases the salaries of the vocational faculty. So this is a major switch. This is moving towards educating blacks towards second class citizenship or third or fourth class citizenship from first class citizenship. The shift in curriculum is important is, is my point here. Um, and so, by the early 20th century, Alcorn University had been downgraded from a bachelor's degree granting university to an agricultural college, to uh, uh, an institution that taught menial labor in the guise of teacher education. That's progress and pushback. Alcorn has started, Alcorn is gutted. Alcorn's not the same today. Remember, I'm ending this story here in the early 20th century. I don't want you leaving here thinking, oh, that Alcorn, don't do that. <laughs> Uh, it's a different institution today. It's a reputable institution today, but um, back in this time period, this is exactly what happened. So more progress and pushback. So schools exist. So, like I, so when those black legislators and their white allies were in these state legislatures, that's when public schooling in the South, the, the school system in the South was born. That's why when I said that whites in the South had, didn't get access to public schooling until after the Civil War, it's because these Republican legislators created public schools for blacks and whites. When those Republican legislatures, legislators were kicked out, the public schools remained for whites, particularly the high schools. So there, are, there, are still rem there remained um, black elementary schools, but very few public black high schools. And when I say very few, I'm saying like one per state, and I'm not exaggerating. Most of the high schools for blacks were private, um, at, particularly in the early 20th century. 
so the progress is schools now exist. It's not illegal now for blacks to be literate. Uh, and some of these schools were actually of, of quite high quality uh, and had a ton of redeemable features in them, including the teachers who cared deeply about the students and they could be rigorous, so there were some very high quality segregated schools. But the pushback was um, that obviously they were underfunded. And let me give you, give you an example from 1950. This is again from Mississippi. Uh, in 1950, I got this from the census. Uh, the state of Mississippi was spending $122.93 per white child in 1950 and $32.55 per black child. That was separate but equal as far as Mississippi was concerned. And so what was happening to blacks is double taxation. So blacks in Mississippi and other states were being taxed because they're tax-paying citizens and those taxes were being funneled into white schools. And, uh, and away from black schools. And so when I say double taxation, that means that black people were paying taxes for the public school system, but then they also had to pay in other ways. Sometimes it was through money, sometimes it was through the gift of time or goods to help support the black schools, the public black schools, and even the private black schools that existed. That's what I mean by double taxation. As well as taxation without representation, black people could not vote in the South. Most of them could not vote um, in 1949. This is a picture from, um, a school, that's the stove in the middle. You see how um, crowded it is there. And to, to dramatize the fact that, remember I said that blacks in the, um, in the South hadn't gotten access to a system of public schooling until the middle 20th century. So here's a, um, some more stats from Mississippi. So again, 1950, in 1950, 70%, so almost three quarters, 70% of blacks in the state of Mississippi who were over the age of 25, so almost three quarters, had less than a seventh grade education. That's 1950, that's like yesterday in history. Only 2.3% had graduated from high school. And it wasn't because they didn't wanna to go to high school, it was because there were no high schools or they were forced to work. There's a variety of systems that were in place that stopped them from being able to pursue their education. So Brown v. Board of Education, another perfect example of progress and pushback. The Brown v. Uh, Board decision was a hugely important decision in jurisprudence. It was, it, was, um, it was a unanimous decision. We can talk about that during questions and answers if you want. It's a Cold War case, so there's a reason that it's a unanimous decision. We're fighting with Russia. Imagine that. Uh, <laughs> um, so it overrules Plessy. Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, said separate could be equal. As long as things were equal, they could be separate. It was about train transportation, but it bleeds into everything, including schools. The Brown decision overturns Plessy, which makes it hugely important that the Supreme Court overturned a previous ruling. That is serious progress. The pushback, so the famous, the, the famous quote from the 54 decision is, separate is inherently unequal. I'm gonna, have us think about that inherently word a little later, but that separate is inherently un unequal. The famous quote from the 55 decision, where I see if it says Brown 2 up here, is with all deliberate speed. They're two different decisions. People don't usually realize that. <laughs> That's why you need to talk to a historian. We've read them. Uh, and so with all deliberate speed, what happens when, when the Supreme Court says, southern states, you must move forward with all deliberate speed to desegregate, southern, it gives the power back to the southern states to determine the pace and path of, of desegregation. 
So you have a state like Mississippi that says, we think 1970 is about right in terms of, and I, this is when Jackson schools, the, uh, the city of Jackson finally desegregated their schools, 1970. The Brown decision was 54, 55. Other states do the same thing. Mississippi, Mississippi like Nina Simone said, Mississippi, goddamn, they took it to an extreme, but it wasn't like other places were uh, a safe haven for blacks in the South either. Um, I, I apologize to the children ears in the audience. I was quoting a book, I mean a song, so that's it was considered a quote. Um, and so it stalls forward progress in any meaningful way because now southern states are like, whatever, um, we'll take our time. Some states move quickly, others move much more slowly. Also what happens, it, that's a picture of Linda Brown, as in Brown v. Board of Education, that's her and her mom over there in front of the Supreme Court. Um, vouchers are born during this time period. That's public money for private education. This picture down here, I've lost four years of education, why five? That's because there's a county in Virginia that closed its schools for that many years rather than desegregate. And what happened is public money for private education, private white academies start popping up. That public money, including black tax dollars, are now going to support private white academies. Private black academies, there are no private black academies, right? There's just, they're out of school. But what happens, more double taxation. And so the black community scraping together money to pay the teachers to be able to teach their kids. So vouchers are born during this time period. Um, black teachers are fired and principals are fired. So when desegregation finally does happen in some of these locales, that's what happens. It's not that, you know, that, that the, the white schools make room for the black teachers. They're just fired, as are the principals, janitorial staff, superintendents. Um, it has a, a, a pretty devastating impact on a big segment of the black community, this move towards desegregation. Lest we think that racism is the purview of the South, uh, let me give you some non-Southern examples. This is from Chicago. The Willis Wagons, so they were named for Benjamin O. Willis. He was the superintendent of instruction in Chicago. Chicago is intensely, you think Seattle's residentially segregated? Go to Chicago. Chicago is intensely residentially segregated, which means its schools were racially segregated. So what happened is there's overcrowding in black schools. Rather than busing those kids to the white schools where there was room, they brought in these portable classrooms. And you see these kids sitting outside, they're protesting the fact that, they, that, um, that they're supposed to be going to school in these um, portable classrooms. That it's about, it's, this is in the early 60s, it's about uh, desegregation. Why can't we just go to another school on a bus? There's overcrowding. That picture over there is uh, Mothers Against Busing in Boston, which turned violent. Not this particular protest, but the things that white adults were saying to black kids in Boston were the exact same things white adults were saying to black kids in Mississippi. Exactly the same, horrific, to stop black kids from being bused into these white schools. This picture on the bottom, I'm not sure, it's not particularly clear, and I'm not actually sure if it's from a school protest, but it's a prize-winning photo, and I think it's an amazing picture of a white man using the American flag as a weapon against a black man. And I show it here because this is, this is I want us to remember it's not just about the South. Lest we forget Seattle in the mix. Uh, these are uh, just a couple of examples of um, racial housing covenants 
that existed in the city of Seattle with the different neighborhoods in Seattle. So I'm not from the city of Seattle. So when we moved here, people kept talking about these neighborhoods. And I didn't understand what they were trying to tell me. I could tell they were trying to communicate something with me, but I couldn't understand. I just totally didn't get it. Um, and it, so like the, the, the fact that like there are these, these kind of like self-contained neighborhoods, this is the way the racial housing covenants looked. Um, and so you can see, there's, you can find plenty more. This, this website, the Seattle um, Civil Rights and Labor History Project website has a ton more. This is where I lifted this information. And I wanted to show this, one, because it's an example from Seattle, and also because you can see, because it's Seattle, there are other um, um, groups targeted. Blacks are not the major, con they're a concern, but there are others who are an incredible concern. And so it's Mongolian, so it's really Filipino, the, the, the Mongolian is really Chinese and Japanese, and then eventually Korean. And then Filipino, they called the Malay. And then Ethiopian, that was black people. I don't know why they, this, these are old housing covenants. Let me just put it that way, it's old housing. Uh, and that they, they, are, they say different things, but the point is the same, right? And then you can even see in, in Magnolia, they don't even want Jews there. I don't necessarily think Jews were welcome in other places either, but they named them in Magnolia. Uh, and so my point here is that this is how Seattle came to be how it is, residentially. It didn't just happen, like the Central District didn't pop up. The International District didn't pop up because people thought, oh, this is a really nice place. That's the only place they could live. It's the only place people would be able to sell a house to them. I mean, even in this first one, whole art part, part blood. It's apparently the one drop rule for house buying too. Uh, and so this has a huge impact on Seattle demographics in terms of neighborhood as well as Seattle um, in, um, in terms of education and schooling um, experiences and opportunities. And I do want to talk a little bit about other groups, like I said, mostly through African Americans, but I do want to talk about the way other groups have experienced education. And so this is, I think it says 1901 up there at the top. And so you can see that this is, this is it says Liberty School. Miss Columbia is the teacher, that's Uncle Sam. This kid down here is Filipino. I'm not sure if you can read it um, back there. There's a kid who's obviously Native American. There's a kid from Cuba, which I thought was an interesting call out uh, in 1901. And I can't read where the other two kids are. But this is about the American school. So equal educational opportunity, merit and morals. It was also about making Americans. It was about assimilation. Assimilation as good and healthy and as a way to achieve um, equal opportunity, economic opportunity, political opportunity, any kind of opportunity, that the school is a great balance wheel. And so you're supposed to be able to send all these kids into Miss Columbia School and they get spit out um, as Americans. And I don't necessarily know if um, this was supposed to be understood as a violent act, this fact of uh, Uncle Sam dragging his Filipino kid. I think the stick is kind of a... Yeah, kind of, is kind of a hint. But this is exactly the way that uh, a lot of uh, groups have actually experienced education as incredibly violent. And so one example are uh, Native Americans. And so most people have heard of boarding schools, Indian boarding schools, right? What people don't usually know is that they were actually a last resort. What happened is you have these white missionary associations moving, this was obviously after Native Americans removed from their land and put into reservations. So now they're on reservations. The, you have these white mis religious missionaries trying to Christianize and Americanize uh, and teach English to these different nations on their now on reservations. You also have the federal government playing a role in it too. And the first thing they tried to do was set up regular schools on the reservations. 
But what they, and the, the whole point was to, and this is a quote, to kill the Indian and save the man. To kill the Indian to save the man. What they found with these regular schools is that these kids kept going home at night and on the weekends. They couldn't kill the Indian because they were still Indian. They were going home and they were, you know, they were with their families, they were with their communities, they were practicing their life ways. So then they create on-reservation boarding schools. They say, okay, we need to contain it a bit more. But kids were climbing over the walls, because walls don't work, and uh, <laughs> I can't help it. Uh, and they go home, right? And so they're still participating as the, in, in their communities. So this is where off-reservation boarding schools come into play. This is when you are deliberately trying to sever the relationship between a parent and a child. When you put them on a train and you send them a thousand miles away. And this is a picture from Carlisle Indian School um, in um, Pennsylvania, 1885. Um, and so all of these kids were quote unquote being Americanized. They were being promised the privileges of whiteness. It said if you would just become Christian, you would become uh, English, you would behave better. You go through the whole curriculum at Carlisle, you learn what it is we're teaching you, you will be able to um, enjoy the privileges of whiteness. That was never, the, it never played out that way. Mexican Americans are another group that were extended the privileges of whiteness. Um, in, uh, so the U.S. went to more war with Mexico, 1846. The war ended in 1848. There was a treaty at the end of the war, um, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And in that treaty, Mexico gives the U.S. like a million acres of land. Texas, parts of Oklahoma, Arizona, New Mexico, all of, Carol, uh, of California, parts of Wyoming. I see you, Gonzalez, my graduate student, doing some research on this. Um, parts of Colorado also. So they cede all this land to the US. And all those Mexicans, who are now Mexican-Americans, were told, via the treaty, that they would enjoy the privileges of citizenship in the US. And citizenship in 1848 meant whites, white men. Other, like, Asians weren't allowed to be citizens. African Americans weren't even a whole person in 1848. Uh, uh, women were excluded totally. Uh, so they were, ex they were supposed to benefit from the privileges of whiteness slash citizenship. That's why I say citizenship and whiteness. I'm using them as synonyms. Just like Native Americans, it didn't work out that way. Never did, never has. To give you an example, there's a California school code, um, ever-evolving California school code. 1863, it lumped Negroes, Mongolians, and Indians together as the groups that could be excluded from public schools, that should be excluded from public schools, and they can create separate public schools for them. So I said, Negroes, Mongolians, and Indians. I didn't say Mexican-Americans, right? Because remember, they were supposed to have the privileges of whiteness. What happens in California, it doesn't work, but a couple legislators tried to get Mexican-Americans reclassified as Indian. <laughs> Talk about the fluidity of race, right? They try and get them reclassified as Indian. Doesn't work, but it shows you the antipathy uh, toward Mexican-Americans. And then, what? In, in an incredibly unique twist, uh, in Texas, Texas had a three-part system of public education, one for whites, one for blacks, and one for Mexican-Americans, right? So 
Texas, after the Brown decision, says, okay, Mexican-Americans, you've been trying to be white for all this time. Now we believe you. You know how we're going to desegregate schools? We're going to put Mexican-Americans together with blacks. <laughs> That's what Texas' proposal was. You want to be white? Congratulations, now you are. You go to school with the black kids. So it's an attempt, again, about like the fluidity of race, to use it as a way to constrain um, educational opportunity. Chinese Americans, I could have done the same thing. We can talk about Japanese Americans too if you want to during the questions and answers. But Chinese Americans, where do they fit in the black-white binary, right? There's actually an interesting case out of Mississippi too that we can talk about later. But I mean, there's an old Chinese community in Mississippi, by the way. So it's a, you know, what do you do with a, black, with a Chinese girl in Mississippi in 1927? To find out, you have to ask me a question later. <laughs> uh, and so 1882, is the first time the US passes a restrictive immigration act. I'm telling you, it's like deja vu all over again. Restrictive immigration act. This one is targeted at the Chinese. It's called the Chinese Exclusion Act. No more Chinese. That's 1882. 1885, this is a picture of the Tape family. Their last name is Tape, T-A-P-E. That's Mamie in the middle. Mamie Tape's the oldest daughter. So they live in San Francisco. Uh, this is in, 18, uh, in 1885. They bring suit against the San Francisco School Board. Because, so San Francisco has a Chinatown. It had a huge Chinatown. And most Chinese lived in Chinatown. So there were schools in Chinatown. You didn't have to worry about the Chinese trying to go to your white school because most of them lived in Chinatown. Mamie Tape's family didn't. They lived outside of Chinatown. She was Americanized in the sense that she spoke English and she was Christian. She was also born in the United States. So her family sued for her to be able to get access to her local public school. As luck would have it, the ever-evolving California school code only excluded Negroes and Indians by this time. And so the California Supreme Court says, sorry, school board. You have to let Mamie Tape go to her local school, which was a white school. So that's progress, right? Here's pushback in less than 24 hours. The next day, the California legislature rewrites the education laws to put Mongolians back in the education school code so that they could be barred from attending school with whites. And so they then build a school for Mamie and her siblings and for any other Chinese people living outside of um, Chinatown. That's progress and pushback there in 24 hours, no less. So I just want to talk uh, a, little, uh, a little bit about blacks and even others controlling their own destiny. I don't want you to think that all of the groups that I've been talking about have not been actors or actresses in their own drama. Uh, people have been active this, uh, fighting back this whole time. And some examples, that's actually, it's blurry, but that's a picture of Frederick Douglass. I told you I love me some Frederick Douglass. That's a picture of him in his library, his study. Um, one example of, of black people creating a way out of no way is Dunbar High School, which was a high school in Washington, DC. It was opened in 1870 uh, by freed men and freed women. It was the first publicly supported high school, so a public high school. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was federally funded rather than state funded. So it opens as a, as a um, high school in 1870. And before long, it becomes incredibly competitive. It has a, an amazing reputation. 
um, there are people who've, uh, who've actually studied Dunbar. Um, by the late 19th century, the school offered an education at least equal to, if not better than, the local white high school kind of education. You had the black students there in 1899, its, it's students outperformed white students at two of the three white high schools in the area on standardized tests. I mean, not that we should pay attention too much to standardized tests, but the point is that they were doing very well. They had access to a rigorous, high-quality curriculum. Their teachers were also more highly trained than the teachers at the white schools. A lot of that had to do with the nature of segregation. There was no other place for these black teachers to teach besides a black high school. And if you want to teach at the best black high school, you teach at Dunbar. So you have highly qualified teachers teaching there. And those teachers actually got paid the same as white teachers. Again, it was because of federal funding. It was, it was federal, it was, it's Washington, D.C. Um, so this is an example of um, blacks making a way out of no way. There's also a variety of black colleges. Uh, these are some of the ones people usually know, but there are several others that exist that um, have a long history of educating black people towards um, first-class citizenship rather than um, menial labor um, tasks. And also this concept of institutional caring. This is from another historian of education, Vanessa Siddle Walker. And she talks about, um, she doesn't romanticize segregated schools. Segregated schools um, had, a, like whether it was funding, there's all kinds of things that hamstrung them. But one of the things that they did for kids, these black kids, was provide institutional caring. The teachers who were always all black believed that those kids could succeed. They went to church with, these, with the kids' parents. The parents were involved in the schools. They believed that the kids had value, that they were fully human. And when these kids left, these black kids left and went to these desegregated contexts, all of that was eroded. And so, like her, I don't want to romanticize segregated schooling, but I do want to highlight um, some of the things that um, we can cling to that came out of it. Just very quickly, some other examples. This is Chief Sequoia. This is how he spelled his name in Cherokee. Rather than, so he, was, he became literate in English, and rather than trying to teach all other Cherokee to be literate in English, he, he created, and when I mean literate, I mean in writing here, he um, created a Cherokee alphabet based on sounds. It was 85 characters. And what it did is it helped Cherokee become literate really fast, because it wasn't about trying to teach them English. And he and his daughter actually create, I think it's the first nationwide distributed uh, bilingual newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix. So it's making a way out of no way. And here's an example. When people, when I, when people usually think about the late 60s, they usually think about like black power or Vietnam War, right? There's other stuff happening in the 60s too. And this is an example. This is um, a picture from the blowouts. They're, they're basically student walkouts in LA in 1968. It's, um, I think it's 15 high schools. You have Chicano students walking out of 15 high schools and issuing demands like smaller class sizes, bilingual education, stop tracking us into vocational education, pretty reasonable, bit, reasonable demands, um, if you ask me. So this is students taking control of their own um, destiny. So in terms of lessons moving forward, what can this history tell us? Are you able to read that text in the back? Can you read it, Karin? I see people, okay. I see people I know, so I can name names. Um, those of you, I see some people I've had in class, you've seen this, um, this slide before. This is about the, the, the um, fallibility, the actual, it's actually more than fallible, the problem, the deep problem with the concept of colorblindness. I show this as kind of a piece of levity, 
because it, what it highlights is the ridiculousness of not talking about race. I think it's funny. Sometimes my students in class, I'm not sure if they think they can laugh out loud. I think it's funny. I think it's funny every time I see it. Like, what, what the hell is a black common man? How's that not funny? Um, but that colorblindness is actually white privilege. It's actually white privilege. Uh, and so how can we fix a problem or problems that are based in racism if we don't talk about race? There's literally no way to do it. The, well, the Supreme Court think, I mean, the, the Supreme Court disagrees with me, by the way, but they didn't, they didn't ask a historian. <laughs> I could have told them about the context of the Brown decision. I could have told them about the context of the 14th Amendment and that neither one of them was supposed to be colorblind, but they didn't ask a historian. Maybe I should become a lawyer, who knows? Um, so anyway, so this about the, the perils of colorblindness, how ridiculous it is, how useless it is as a way to chart a path forward. Also, I do believe that there are value, there's value and possibilities in separate spaces. And I use the word separate intentionally as different from segregated. So those of you who have had in class, you know this too, I make them do a definitions exercise where they define a bunch of terms, desegregation, integration, because one of the things I want them to think about is, are they synonyms or not? Um, assimilation, acculturation, same thing there. And then I have them think about the context of, of um, the concepts of segregation and separation. And um, one of the things that's made me think this way about it is that W.E.B. Du Bois, with a D U, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, wrote this piece in 1935 called Does the Negro Need Separate Schools? And he's talking about the North, it's 1935, remember? But his answer is yes, temporarily. He's not saying forever, but he's saying black kids are being brutalized in these desegregated spaces, physically, Academically, psychologically, emotionally, these are unhealthy places. So yes, the Negro needs separate schools. And so when I think about segregated, I think about that for the purpose of hierarchy. When I think about separate, it's not for the purpose of hierarchy. So you can think about Wellesley, Brandeis. People don't, usually don't have a problem when I talk about Jewish uh, in, institutions or women's institutions. It's when race enters the picture. People are like, wait a minute, isn't that racist to have a black student union? No, no. Uh, that there's actual value in it. This is, so that picture over there uh, is from, it's called Rough Rock Demonstration School. It's a, it's a Navajo school in Arizona that it mixes academics with teaching of the Navajo language and culture and life ways and these kinds of things. So um, just some examples of um, value and possibilities in separate spaces. This idea I got from Michelle Alexander in her book, um, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Tinkering, I love the, I just like the way she thinks. Um, tinkering is for mechanics, not racial justice um, advocates. And her point there is that, uh, so she's a legal, legal scholar, and she's obviously talking about the criminal justice system, and she, uh, but she does talk a little bit about education, and she says, it wasn't the Brown decision that made shifts in the way black people um, experience schools, it was a mass movement that did it. The mass movement is what did it. Um, and she talks about the uh, drug problem. She talks about the fact that the drug problem is 
is um, racialized in the sense that it's usually considered to be a black and brown problem when, you know, um, suburban white mothers abusing prescription pills or white frat boys using ecstasy, they're not considered uh, part of the drug problem. And she says, um, it is because drug crime is racially defined in the public consciousness that the electorate has not cared much about what happens to drug criminals, at least not the way they would have, have, they would have cared if the criminals were understood to be white. It is this failure to care, really care across color lines, that lies at the core of this system of control. So her point is that the law alone cannot change the criminal justice system. There needs, there's the court of public opinion um, that needs to be shifted also. Um, and she goes on to say, without overturning the public um, consensus, the caste system will reemerge in a new form, just as convict leasing replaced slavery, or it will be reborn, just as mass incarceration replaced Jim Crow. And I would argue it's the same with schools. This progress pushback, progress pushback, progress pushback. That um, the, what happened after the legal victory of Brown is a perfect example, not just for her purposes, um, but for mine. Oh, let me just go back to this. Oh, oh, those are my babies. Uh, <laughs> our babies. Uh, oh, oh. So as a historian, I think the chalkboard is a technological innovation, so the fact that I'm using PowerPoint is actually amazing. <laughs> you might not think about that way, but I think about that way. Uh, and so that's a picture, oh, I have to stay by the mic. That's a picture of the March on Washington, uh, as well as a placard from the March on Washington. Um, this is students in South Carolina uh, marching for freedom. It's really about desegregation. This newspaper clipping, uh, students, black students at a school kick off a boycott because they are unhappy with the quality of education that they're receiving, and the whole community backs them. So these are, like I said, examples of social movement, like the, this trying to change the public um, uh, consensus and consciousness. And that picture down there, um, you can't really see him, but the, if you can see the man with the mic, that's Stokely Carmichael. This is um, on a march in Mississippi when he helps to kick off the Black Power Movement, 1966, summer of 1966, June to be specific. So I would agree with Michelle Alexander that um, shifting in the public consciousness, not just the law, is something that needs to happen. And in that spirit, there's a lot of white work to be done. And so uh, one of the things that SNCC did, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, in 1966, it, it, was, a, it was an organization um, that had blacks and whites as members. In, in, in 1966, there's a shift for not every black person, but a lot of black people. They're like, you know, we've been banging our heads against this wall for a really long time, and nothing seems to be changing anytime soon. We need a new strategy. This is when black, the idea of black power and a different way of um, uh, defining the ends and the means of black liberation um, comes to be. And in 1966, SNCC, the black people in SNCC, kick white people out. And they say, if you really want to eradicate racism, go work in the white community. You keep coming to Mississippi to work in the black community. Go work in the white community. That's where the problem is. That's where racism lives. Reminds me of this last election. You know, there's work to be done, plenty of it. Get at it. <laughs> uh, also, I think what's useful, I found this really useful. This is from Danielle Allen's um, Talking to Strangers. Or I think, yeah, it's, I forgot the um, prefix. Anxieties of citizenship since Brown. 
And I'm going to read it. I know I'm not supposed to read long quotes, but I found this really useful for me when I was trying to understand what the unum and e pluribus unum meant. And I think about it as if we could shift the end to which we're supposed to be working, then maybe it opens up other possibilities and trajectories for us. Uh, and so she contrasts wholeness and oneness here. So wholeness, that oneness, is the master term in the history of the production of democratic peoples. It means uninjured, sound, healthy, and complete. Dictionaries do not treat one as its synonym. The reason for this is simple. Speaker cannot use the word one to mean multiplicity, but the word whole entails just that. The effort to make the people one cultivates in the citizenry a desire for homogeneity. In contrast, an effort to make people whole might cultivate aspiration to the coherence and integrity of a consolidated but complex intricate and differentiated body. And so for me, I found it really helpful. Like I said, it helps me think about how if we could just shift the way we understand the goal, the role of school in society to be something different than it has traditionally been understood, that it opens up all kinds of new possibilities. So here are some more pictures of our babies. <laughs> So uh, Jabari is the older one and Jordan is the younger one. I used to say to people, I'm a historian, why do you think I care about the present or the future? Now I have kids. I didn't really mean it in the past, but now I seriously don't mean it uh, because I'm worried about these two little black boys who are gonna become black men. And I have a, I'm pretty secure in the fact that in their schooling experiences, they're gonna be okay. Their parents are faculty members in education and every teacher's gonna know it. I don't know who's going to be the good cop, but we'll see. Uh, but I am worried about them when they have to leave the school environment. I'm worried about what, um, how they're going to be understood. I'm worried that people see them already as threats in the making. So when it comes to schools, I know that this, I, I, I used to teach a class called Education for Liberation, and I will again, I promise. Um, and people used to tell me I should rename the class Education for Oppression. <laughs> because they were so depressed at the end of it. Um, <laughs> I was like, well, that's history. Um, <laughs> uh, but I do believe in the power of school, and one of the reasons I believe in it, I feel like I have to believe in it, because it's the only compulsory institution in which we must all participate. So it's incredibly vital. Is it a panacea? Is fixing the school the panacea to all of America's problems? Absolutely not. One of my colleagues puts it this way. He says, the school's not the engine of society. It's the caboose. I don't know if it's the caboose, but it's definitely one of the train cars, somewhere in the middle. But I do believe in the power of education. I do believe that it's worth fighting over. I do believe it's worth learning about. And I'm going to end with this quote from Du Bois. And this is one of the reasons uh, that I do believe so deeply in the power of education. Because I believe, like Du Bois, that for education among all kinds of men and women always has had and always will have an element of danger and revolution, of dissatisfaction and discontent. I'm not uncomfortable with dissatisfaction and discontent. I actually think it can fuel a better future. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed your talk. I'm someone who is interested in becoming an educator um, as I move forward. And like you, I also really value education. And I think that it can be something that can be, you know, the great equalizer, so, so to speak. But I also agree that it is currently not the great equalizer. So I was curious whether you have any tips for people like me who want to go into the educational profession for how we can help make it become a more uh, a better place to serve justice for all, basically. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think um, a great place to start is self-knowledge um, and reflection. Um, because I think we bring, I know, we bring all kinds of um, prior knowledge, including biases and other kinds of, you know, other, like, isms with us. And so one of the things that I always hope for um, teacher candidates and practicing teachers is that they do some self-interrogation about where they stand, like they stand. Like Bell Hooks says, you know, all teachers should have therapy, right? Or something like that. Did she say something like that? I think we should all, I think it was probably good for everybody. But um, when you're dealing with kids, um, kids that you're unfamiliar with, kids that you don't know, families you don't know, I think understanding why you're in it um, and, and the role you can play in it, and then partnering with the kids in communities where it is you want to work, those are incredibly powerful ways to pre-prepare yourself for having um, your own classroom. So to do self-work, um, as well as getting to know in a deep and meaningful way the people that you're actually trying to affect. Um, I'd like to follow up on that question. How would you suggest they change the education, the training for upcoming teachers to help them be better with different cultural groups? Yeah. How can, we, how can the teachers advocate for change in the education that they're getting so that they can be better with different ethnic groups? That you wasn't know, my original question. But. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, you know, what's unfortunate, so uh, graduate school in the, in the state of Washington, you're supposed to have a graduate degree, right, to teach. It's expensive. Um, and uh, there's this push to shorten more and more the length of a teacher training program. In my perfect world, I want a teacher as an intellectual. In my perfect world, that doesn't take five quarters. That takes much longer than five quarters, but that's usually what they have. Uh, and so, but I also know that people are broke, and they want to eat, and start getting paid and stop paying student loans, right? So I get it, there's a tension there. But in my perfect world, um, there would be more time in teacher education. Because you, they, you still have to learn about the pedagogy, you still have to learn about classroom management, you still have to learn about assessment, all of those things, and subject matter, specialty, all of that is vital. You cannot become a teacher without that. But you, I also think that you can't become a teacher without actually knowing um, your students, knowing yourself and knowing your students. And it's hard to shoehorn that in. And I don't, like our own teacher education programs here are working hard, hard as hell to try and figure out a way to weave it all the way through um, so it's not a standalone class like your diversity class and you can check it off. Uh, to weave it all the way through. And so there are places, including here at the UW, that are working to try and figure it out within the limited scope that they have uh, within the teacher training program. But I think another incredibly powerful thing that can help with um, teacher education is professional development after teachers graduate. Because there's no way you can learn what you need to know in those years, in those, that year and a quarter. Then you get your own classroom, you don't know where the light switches are. <laughs> uh, 
I barely watch the news, but that's the news I catch. Uh, so continued professional development around these things with people who actually know how to do it. Because I think sometimes it's the blind being the blind and everybody's afraid to say race. Everybody's afraid to say black. Can I say black? Should I say African-American? What should I say? What, should, what do you prefer to be called? People are afraid to be called racist. White people are afraid to be called racist. So it usually stops them in their tracks from talking about race. So creating um, professional development around that kind of thing and involving um, the parents and the communities in the school or, uh, is, a, is a third way to help teachers with their work. So I think there's a variety of things that can be done. Um, we, we do live within a, a lot of constraints. And a lot of people are trying it, but a lot of people aren't. There's work to be done. So my original question has to do with vouchers. There, there's more talk now, current talk about a voucher system. So I'd like to get your opinion on that and how also how we can become more informed on what that actually means and how we can help others become more informed. On what, what means? On, on what the use of vouchers mean oh. and its effect on the public school system. Uh, well, um, personally, I think public money for private education is incredibly dangerous. Um, I think if you go private, you should pay for private, and my tax dollars shouldn't pay for your private. If I want to go private, I do that, and I pay for it myself. Um, so I think it, um, I think it is a, what I'm most concerned about is the, I'm, I'm a big advocate of separation between church and state, and that's my biggest concern. That this, that the, 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 I mean, it's already blurry, the line between church and state is already blurry. But vouchers is going to kick it up a notch where uh, it's going to be public subsidy for different religions and the way that they go about um, education. Um, and I think public money should be used for public education. So in terms of being educated about it, um, you can come take a class. Uh, um, but also, I just think um, paying attention, going to school board meetings, reading around, trying to you know um, get to the bottom of things. Um, one of the things that being a historian will will teach you is to try and get to the bottom of stuff, right? To interrogate what people offer you as truth, to to find the um, what's what's the evidence for your claim, and so to even when people are advancing claims about this initiative will do that, dig it, dig up under it and see what's there. And there's a variety of ways to do it. So that's what I would suggest in terms of um, getting knowledge is think like a historian. Search for the evidence under the claim. Hey, Dr. Joy. Hi, Kylia. <laughs> um, so as you, as you know, but not everybody, I'm in the College of Education, but not interested in, in going into teaching or schools. I am interested in anti-racist work, and I'm, so I'm wondering how, uh, what do you think the role of coalitions and collaborations between folks in the education system and field um, with folks outside of the education field, I see a lot of you in here, what, what, do you, what are your suggestions around some ways to go about that and what value that would have in terms of the, the coalition in, in building up schools and building up our society to be more anti-racist and, and social justice? So I think um, there's this research methodology. Is it design-based research? I don't do this, but Joe does. Dr. Lott does. Um, and it's all about true collaboration or collaboration 
is what people, often what people say. Um, and so when I think about collaborations between people in schools and people outside of schools and any kind of collaboration, if we really wanna make a difference, then we truly have to collaborate. I don't come and tell you, this is what I need you to do. You YWCA, uh, this is what I want you to do. I have the ideas. I know who you're trying to reach, trust me. So we as organizations and, and, and individuals need to collaborate, but we also need to talk to the communities that we're collaborating about. Right, and so I think that is actually a hugely missed step uh, when it comes to collaboration or racial justice work. People wanna come in, they have like a savior uh, mentality, and I know what's best for you. If you would just listen to me, I will set you free. That's not the way it works. You might not be identifying the right problem. And so when I think about collaboration, it's in those two ways. One is uh, organization to organization in a true collaboration, and the other is bringing in the people that you're trying to uh, work uh, with instead of on. I'll see you soon, Kylie. That's my master's student. Um, hi, I'm Victoria Thomas. Um, I am currently a PhD right now in the Department of Communication, um, and I kind of just wanted to ask a question a little bit about the pedagogy, um, especially when it comes to thinking about politics. Um, Currently, right now, we're like, um, and I guess in my program, we're talking about whether teachers are allowed to be political and what is our role in the classroom when we're teaching our students about subjects and is it okay to, I guess, pick a side? So I kind of wonder, how do you kind of deal with that? I know you specifically deal with race, but for teachers who don't specifically deal with race and these um, issues come up, how do we kind of deal with the political nature of it and also still fulfill our duties as teachers? That's a good question. It's one of the reasons I like teaching adults. <laughs> I don't have to meet your parents. We have nothing to talk about. Uh, you're an adult. Um, uh, but I'm in a different context, right? So, and I even teach graduate students, so I teach like extra grown people. Um, but um, <laughs> that's the way I refer to them. Uh, but I taught a class in the fall called Education as a Moral Endeavor, and I had a lot of teachers in that class. Um, so this was during the election. And um, they were terrified about how to talk about it. So I don't know if I wanna give general advice to teachers about how to manage it in the classroom. My best advice would be to stick close to your colleagues, make sure you're working together, and know your families, not just the kids. Because I emailed my son's teacher that night, no, that, that night, that fateful night, four <laughs> o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I didn't ask her, uh, I, I think what's dangerous is, so it reminds me of colorblindness, right? And so avoiding, pretending like the election didn't happen is like pretending you're colorblind. It doesn't help. Kids, know, kids are aware, kids know, and so I actually think it's irresponsible to not talk about it. You do have to be careful how you talk about it. It's a public school. You should be careful about it because you're, you're a teacher, not a pundit. Um, but knowing your families, knowing your colleagues and your principal will help teachers figure out how to manage it. This is another reason I think professional development is so key. I think teachers often think they're working in isolation and sometimes they are. But if you just talk to your colleagues and figure out how are you dealing with in your class because you're going to have the same kids. So how, how, do you, how do you manage it? So like I said, I don't want to give kind of global advice about how teachers do it, but I do think it's, it's irresponsible not to. So when I emailed our son's teacher, I said, look, because I knew that they had talked about he's in first grade. Uh, 
our oldest son. So I said, look, I know you talked about the election before tonight, because I knew that, because he came home with stuff that kind of sent some red flags in my head, so I just kind of <laughs> kept it there, filed it away. He's six, so I don't necessarily trust every piece of information he comes home with. Uh, but um, I filed it away, and then the election happened. And I emailed her and I said, I'm not asking you not to talk about it. I'm not, I'm not the teacher. I'm not trained as a teacher. Like I said, I like teaching adults. Um, but what I'm asking is that you're gentle with the kids. I said, I'm sure that there are some people who are going to be thrilled with the outcome of the election. There are others who are devastated and afraid for their safety. So please be gentle. The emotions are raw. And I also said, I ask that you message home to parents how it was taken up in class. Because I, I think that's responsible. I need to know what you're doing. So I need, because I might have to undo it. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, and so I, I think that's why I say interfacing with families, making sure that families are informed, they can help in these kinds of situations. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Gonzalo. Hi, uh, Professor Williamson Law. It's, it's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is really a question about self-care during this time. Um, you know, it's a tough time to be a person of color in this country. I mean, it's always been so. <laughs> um, but, but also on this campus, but particularly be a scholar of color, particularly one that studies race. Um, uh, and you talk about being a historian, and it's one thing to have hindsight, but also foresight of living through the time that we're living in and to know what happened in history, but to also to live it and experience it and know what's been done and what potentially could be done now. And so that is a tough, it's so easy to be demoralized at this time. And it's so easy to use hope, um, whether it be a scholar of color or just a student of color. Um, so my question is a question of self-care and one of guidance and aspiration, inspiration of. Why are you going to ask? You know, you know, Gazal, we meet in my office all the time. I'll you see you on Friday. No hope. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is for the audience, Joy. Um, of any, like, what is Dr. Williamson lot like? What keeps you going, right, during this time, given what you know, your expertise, your knowledge? You know, my wing women and my partner and my family, it's really those, it's my relationships that keep me going because I can cry in front of these people and they're not gonna judge me, they're just gonna hold me. Uh, and they're not gonna say, oh, it's gonna be all right, stop crying. They're gonna be like, yeah, it totally sucks right now. Uh, <laughs> I totally get it, I'm gonna cry with you right now, okay? We're just gonna cry together. Sometimes that's all you need, right? I don't need an ad, it's like, so, so as a historian, so I have people will, they, like, uh, people will say to me, oh, this is just a moment in time. It thinks ebb and flow. I know things ebb and flow, I study history. <laughs> but I also know how deep and terrifying those ebbs can be and how long they last and how impactful they are. And it terrifies me. Like this moment in time terrifies me about the long-term consequences. I was never just worried about the election. I was always worried about the next four years, no matter who got elected. Because I understand, I study history, I, can, I, can, I know how, how deep these, these ebbs are, how you get stuck in these eddies. Um, and so in terms of like how I get up in the morning, right, and come to work, um, it's, my, it's my relationships. 
that do it. And I and I and it, this it's it is true, even though you are a student, it is true. It's my students, right? So I have great students. Part of it is our self-selected. So I pick great people. Um, but it's also my students, including the students who were like who were in my class last quarter. I don't know if they know that. I see some of them in here, but last quarter after the election, so I had threatened to be in Canada, right? So obviously I wasn't. I showed up at class the next Monday. Um, and um, I don't know if they noticed this, but I didn't stay in the room while they talked about it. I gave them the space to talk about it. I said, think about this class, education as a moral endeavor, along with the, the election. I know you want to talk about it, go for it. And I left, because I couldn't handle it, still. So like I said, I don't know if they, it happened, right? But you guys didn't even realize what was happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, because my confidence wanes, my hope, is, you know, blip, blip. It's like on life support. <laughs> but what sustains me is my relationships. So keep coming to see me in my office. We'll work it out. <laughs> yes. I have a two-part question. Sure. The first part is, do you happen to know what the racial composition was of Washington State's first public school at Bush Prairie? I don't. Is this a quiz? And secondly, what do you think the effect of the uh, Barefoot School Boy Act by Governor Rogers uh, had upon the education of racial minorities? Uh, you're going to have to give me some more context for both of those questions. For one, I know, I already know the answer to the first question. No, I do not know the racial demographics of the Okay, school. the Barefoot School Boy Act, Governor Rogers was a governor about 1900. He was <laughs> from the Populist Party. And the effect of the act was to provide school supplies for children who were came to school barefoot. Oh, see, you knew the answers to your own questions. I, I just wondered, I mean. I didn't know, but I do now. Yeah, okay, Bush Prairie is part of, uh, Bush was an uh, African-American man, donated uh, land for a school, and I assume his kids attended the school also. Probably, thank you. Yes. Hi. Um, you, sorry, <laughs> you right. post the question in um, lecture, no one else um, asked it, so I figured I would. Um, <laughs> what do you do with the Chinese girl in Mississippi in 1927? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he wasn't even a plant, but he picked it up. <laughs> Thank you. So 1927 Mississippi, what do you do with the Chinese girl? Gong Lum versus Rice, it's a Supreme Court decision. Um, and so it's Mississippi in 1927. Um, She's a school age, uh, makes her way to the Supreme Court, and basically the Supreme Court says she might not uh, be black, but she damn sure ain't white, so she's got to go to the colored school. Mm. Uh, and uh, I was reading this just the other day. James Lowen, the guy who wrote um, Lies My Teacher Told Me, I don't know if this was in that book or in a different book of his, but he talks about the case, because what happens is the plaintiffs in the case, Gong Lum, use white racist reasoning to argue on behalf of getting their daughter into the white school. They say, if, if the black race is a danger um, to other races, it's just as much a danger to the Chinese as it is to whites. So it's dangerous for us Chinese to be with them too. So that's why we should be in the white school. And so Lowen talks about, he says it's a legal strategy. He says that the plaintiffs and the lawyers for the plaintiff didn't actually believe it, but he does acknowledge that what it does is fortify white supremacy. So that's what happens to a Chinese girl in Mississippi. She goes to the colored school. Could be the last question. Oh, and then I'm going to let Patrick ask because I know Patrick. Question. So I'm sorry. We'll, we'll go here and then with Patrick. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so I want to thank you because I have been trying to under, struggling to understand something, and I think I understand it from what you've said. Um, I've been a public school educator for um, most of my life. Well, almost, yeah, it's almost. And um, there's most of the people in my school are younger than me, and there's a trend which I have not understood, and I think you put your finger on it, and that is that um, white people teaching white people about racism. Which has a place, and right? So but I, I have not understood this yeah. until you mentioned the comment about SNCC. People saying, yeah. you know, go back to your communities. The problem is we have racism in white communities. That's where the problem is. Go back to your communities and work with them. So I guess I'm asking you if you would say more about that. Well, I think, I mean, uh, I, b I believe it, right? But I also think that there needs to be cross-conversation. Um, I just think what often happens, it's like when you're the only student of color in a classroom, you're like, so how do black people feel about that? I don't know, I'll tell you how I feel about it. Um, and so that's the danger in having, and, and also, so that's one danger, right? Another is that assuming that a person of color has, um, knows how to run these kinds of conversations. Like, so the reason I know all this black history is because I studied black history. I wasn't born with it in my head. Mm. Just because I'm black. <laughs> I had to study it. It's the same thing with trying to have race conversations. They can go sideways really fast. I have made some go sideways really fast because uh, I don't appreciate pandering. And I'm not really a kumbaya kind of person either. Um, uh, so I think there, there is, there is um, deep value in, in white people talking about racism, even acknowledging that it even exists and trying to figure it out and working on self. Um, and then there are other times when other kinds of conversations are useful. It's trying to figure out which time uh, and which place works, but they both have a place. Okay, thank you. Patrick Sexton. Thank you for taking my of question. Thank I'm you not? for this. Thank you for saying such nice things about our teacher ed program. <laughs> um, so you started with the premise that about what you, you talked about what historians why we should listen to historians in these conversations and and you set up your talk about uh, successes and pushbacks. Mm -hmm. So can you we're working on a lot of stuff. We're working on a lot of stuff to try and support schools to do better for everyone. Can you globalize a little bit and and is there something we can learn from history as we're working on these issues about pushback, about being prepared for pushback? Is there is yeah. there some things, some things you could leave us with to, to think about as we work on these issues? You know, I wish I had the book with me. There's a book called Color Mute. Um, she, the argument is by Micah Pollack, and uh, she says the, the problem is we're not, we're not, she says we're not colorblind, what we are is color mute. We refuse to talk about race. And I, one of the reasons I like the book is because it's, a, it's about a um, high school, it's a case study of a high school and it's all about race in California, and in the back she has tips for teachers and, uh, and, and being able to, to anticipate how things will go off the rails, right, or people will try and appropriate it. And she has this list in the back of, thing, of the things that you can anticipate that people will say, it's like the all lives matter. Black lives matter versus all lives matter, or it's not just blacks, it's also about class, and, or not just race, it's also about class. Um, but I, I think that we should just anticipate pushback because um, the kind of like when I talk about like a mass movement, that is incredibly disruptive um, to the public school system. 
it would demand a whole kind of, like all kinds of changes in the curriculum teacher training, pedagogy, teacher assignments, even the way the curriculum is, curriculum is taught, like more humanities, like I think what's happening now, like you have humanities teachers versus just English and history, um, or ELA and, and history. You know, but I, I am both soothed and frightened by what I'm about to say. So as a historian, I understand things take time. So again, I'm not necessarily worried about that, you know, because I understand that reforms, you can't, you, they just don't, I mean, and I think all, we have to give reforms time to take and then evaluate before we throw them out again. So in one sense, I'm not um, concerned with how fast things can happen. On the other hand, how many more generations do we have to lose? And so there is a sense of urgency around this. I think, not that our teacher ed program is doing this, but people are often seeking the magic bullet. And so for me, it's hard to globalize because one of the ways I understand even the black freedom struggle is as local struggles. And so when I think about change, educational change, I'm okay with local change, district change, school-wide change. So it's hard for me to kind of to global. I think there are definitely things that we can anticipate that will happen in terms of pushback, and we should just anticipate pushback, but, pre but be prepared for it and not be dissuaded or demoralized for it. For it. There's tons of work to be done. We have to stick at it and be together in partnership to make it happen. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> I hope to see some of you in my classes eventually. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Professor Joy Williamson Lott gave this talk, New Hurdles, Same Territory, How History Can Guide the Future of Education, at UW's Kane Hall on February 15th. She spoke as part of the graduate school lecture series, Equity and Difference, Privilege. Tune in again soon.